The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, December 22nd, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Walmart. Remember Walmart? They used to be the existential threat to America until Amazon came along. Walmart was acid rain, Amazon's global warming. Anyway, Walmart suspended its program with two firms they had contracted with. One was Corrective Education Corporation. The other was Turning Point Justice. I will let that company describe what it does. Turning Point Justice, or TPJ, is a rapidly growing cloud technology company that provides collaborative solutions to retail theft that cultivate positive change through restorative justice. Turning Point Justice, the 2017 winner of the Jargi Award for the most buzz phrase-laden description. We thought sustainable locavorism within a greater win-win context of next-generation collateral damage solutions might have taken it, but no, it was Turning Point Justice. Here's what they actually do. You get caught shoplifting, you could go to jail, Walmart could spend a lot of resources holding you until the cops come, Or they can make you take a six-hour course online and pronounce you cured. To opt into this exciting program costs four or five hundred bucks, and those bucks go to Turning Point Justice. Now listen to former Dallas Police Chief Bill Rathburn praise the company he works for now, Corrective Education Corporation. When somebody is arrested, particularly at an early age and put into the criminal justice system, uh, often they end up stigmatized for the rest of their lives. Wait, wait, I want to skip ahead just a little bit. It's the same palaver, but listen to how the music swells a little bit. In the Industrial Film Awards, this won for Sickest Drop of 2017. To correct that mistake and not be branded by that mistake. But don't take Bill Rathburn's word for it. Listen to some of the glowing testimonials on the CEC website. Blanca says, this course changed my life. I respect others and myself. In other words, I learned to educate my hands and my mind. And Jorge says, this is a great program that I would recommend for all my family and friends. I enjoyed this program very much. Yes, all of Jorge's family and friends who get busted shoplifting at Walmart, this exciting opportunity can be yours. Now, there's just one problem with these programs. They're extortion. It could be extortion. That's a case made by the San Francisco City Attorneys. They allege that they require those caught to sign a confession in a highly coercive situation, an isolated room with limited time to make a choice, a security guard threatening to call the police. They show you a video that's full of false and misleading statements. And if the student doesn't pay, the city attorney says the company threatens to give the confession to the police. There was an example cited, actually happened, a paraplegic woman in a wheelchair wheeling out of a store with a $6 item draped over her handlebar. She said she forgot it was there I don't know, isn't that exactly what a master criminal would say? I see a business opportunity with these courses. What you do is this. You open a store with really bad security, like tempting items right near the front door. You purposefully hire a security guard with narcolepsy. And then when the thief goes to grab a pair of, I don't know, $20 sunglasses, bingo, you nail them, 400 bucks. I mean, the merchandise is just your loss leader. You make your real money from a coercive rehab program. Not just coercive, cloud-based coercive. I just worry that with CEC and Turning Point Justice abandoned by Walmart, Blanca and Jorge will lose out on valuable life lessons. On the show today, I spiel about America 
Is it better than Europe? I always thought so. I still do. But first, we are living in two Americas, a famous politician once said. So what Ken Stern did was he went to the other America, the red state America, and he lived among them. So you'll hear this interview. I like Ken. I think he likes me. But I just wanted to make this point, which I didn't have the opportunity to do so now, which is this. I don't necessarily question the motives or character of the people I disagree with. I just question what their choices and policy goals will do to me and my life. And I guess based on that, I question Ken Stern pretty aggressively. Ken Stern, for years, was the CEO of National Public Radio. And even worse than that, he lived in Washington, D.C. Now he's the president of Palisades Media Ventures. He's an expert on charitable giving. Uh, But he wasn't being so charitable to his uh, erstwhile employers in writing a book called Republican Like Me, How I Left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to Love the Right. Hey, Ken, how you doing? Hi, Mike. Uh, I'm all right. Although I wonder about that introduction, but other than that, I'm fine. <laughs> I don't know if you weren't being charitable to NPR, but a lot of the excitement, the frisson of excitement from the book, I'm sure when you were pitching it to a publisher was, I'm the NPR guy. I ran NPR. Who better to live among conservatives than an NPR guy, right? So uh, actually not a big part of the book pitch. Uh, the book pitch, and the book is really about you know, the polarization of America we spent, we're increasingly divided, not around issues. We actually haven't changed our views in the last 25 years on issues. We're actually very stubborn people, but we're just increasingly angry at the other side. And it's because we live separately from each other. So the book pitch in the book was really about a guy, lifelong Democrat, yes, former CEO of NPR, um, if I have to show my blue credentials, spending a year or more with the other side. Right. So a professor from Stanford by the name of Morris Fiorina wrote a book a few years ago called One Nation After All. And it's, it demonstrated exactly what you're saying. If you look at the issues, we haven't even moved that much. We're not that far apart. And since Fiorina wrote the book, we have become a little further apart. But in a way that doesn't matter, because are we really voting on issues per se? I mean, look at the last election. How much issue talk was there? There was just this, and the phrase that a political scientist would use, this negative partisanship. That has become the hallmark of American democracy. The thing that worried me is less about voting patterns. We're often very much inherit our voting interests and uh, it goes down from generation to generation. It's been shown uh, repeatedly. What has worried me is less about that we continue to vote sort of in the same way but sort of attitudes about each other and the other side. That's because we're increasingly only listening to each other. We are much more geographically and regionally divided. We're much more divided by media. When you don't know the other side, we don't live among them, we don't listen to them, um, it's easy to demagogue the other side and hate them. And we increasingly hate the other side um, in ways that are extraordinary. There was a, there's a, a survey that's been done since the 50s and it asks this most interesting question, which is, do you want your child to marry and then fill in the blank? And, you, and in the 50s, it was they would ask around race and religion and also political party. And this question back then was strange. Who would ever think about not wanting to have your kid marry someone from the other side, a different political party? But right. now, 
Like half the people in this country don't want their kids to marry someone of a different political stripe. And it's crazy. And that's really what the book's about. So what did you find that it was really like? I mean, you... On the one hand, the conceit of the book is that I've been living in a bubble. But on the other hand, the fact that you thought that this was valuable shows me that you didn't go in hating the other side. So what did you find out uh, that was eye-opening and that actually endeared you to conservatives? I mean, so so this is all goes to the sort of the basket of deplorables, like half the people on the other side are, are racist and bigoted and hate gays. The truth of the matter is most people aren't paying attention on a day-to-day basis. The, the dialogue out there in social media and the media conversation controlled by a very small slice of the public. And we are getting our views of what other people are like on both sides from that very small, angry electorate um, or piece of the electorate. And that does not reflect the country as a whole. So the basket of deplorables quote was, you know, to be grossly generalistic, you could put half of Trump supporters into what I call a basket of deplorables, right? The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. (laughs) Now, Trump supporters, you know, Trump's at 38 percent support. So is it actually wrong to say that 19 percent of Americans or of those who voted actually can be described by those words? I mean, I would think that half of Trump supporters did not mind the tweet where he quoted Britain First, the radical right-wing website. I just, I think that half of Trump supporters, it's quite likely, find absolutely nothing wrong with him talking about Pocahontas at the uh, Navajo Code Talkers event. On the one hand, you can say what that quote shows is that Democrats, Hillary Clinton standing in for all of them, uh, write off half the country. But on the other hand, I think it's defensible. Yeah, so that's that's the interesting thing, and I think that's the attitude of uh, Hillary Clinton apologized for it. I think a lot of people don't apologize for it and believe it, um, but that's a lot of people. That's thirty million people. Donald Trump got sixty-two and a half million votes. Right, you're talking about you want to take and categorize and define thirty-one million people by who they hate. And truthfully, there are some out there. I met some of them. I. I spent a lot of time with conservative media. I spent more time than is healthy for anyone on the comment pages of Breitbart. I know that's out there. But it's not who I met and I don't think it um, reflects the mass of people who voted for Trump, who didn't vote for Trump, who abstained from the election. We forget history so easily in this country. It's the war room of the Clinton campaign in 1992. It's the economy stupid. I met most people wanted to talk about jobs and opportunity and getting uh, opportunities for their family and for the future. A lot of the people I met were beaten down, the sort of the white working classes on a 30-year losing streak. They have no sense of opportunity in the future for them and their kids. Of course they're angry. Of course they're looking for something different. Of course in some ways they're easy to manipulate. It doesn't make them all those things that people, uh, frankly, who don't know them want to label them as. But the person who's experiencing economic bad times and really only cares about their job can also be racist. Sure. Jamel sure. Bowie wrote an article that I think had an inaccurate headline, but other than that, everything <laughs> is a good argument. There's no such thing as a good Trump voter. And the subhead gets more at it. People voted for a racist who promised racist outcomes. They don't deserve your empathy. And maybe they deserve your empathy, but I think there's a great argument to be said that he said what he was going to do and what he was going to do is xenophobic and racist. And therefore, if you vote for him, those labels fairly apply to you. You might be a nice person who would be nice to you or me, Ken, or even a black person on a personal basis, but that doesn't absolve you from being a racist. Can you be a nice person where the labels xenophobic and racist fairly apply to you? Look, 
people are complicated and they could be all those things bundled up in one. Sure. I mean, I think about some of the people I met. I mean, I think it's better than sitting here arguing about are they racist or are they not racist? Uh, it's not going to get us very far. You know, I, I think a lot of people uh, um, vote by who's different, who feels different from those who have done poorly for them before. And if you want to talk about the white working class, you know, really a 30-year uh, losing streak. Uh, uh, decline in income, de decline in life expectancy, decline in hope for the future, rise in opioid addiction. And they feel, I think, genuinely betrayed by both Democrat and Republican administrations. A lot of people are going to vote for anyone who seemed the most different than who came before. It could have been Bernie Sanders. It could have been Donald Trump. I absolutely get all that. But if the uh, exercise is to say, you know, these are or aren't bad people, uh, you're right. We can't weigh in and say who's a bad person. <laughs> but if the exercise is to say that those phrases that Hillary Clinton used, among them xenophobic and racist, for half, and this wasn't even all, for half of Trump's electorate, she got it right. It's fair. I, I don't uh, – it's certainly not my experience. I mean you're talking about 30 million people. You don't think 30 million people – you don't think 10 percent of the country is totally xenophobic? Well, if 30 I mean, The polls million, will tell that's you not, that – That's not – that's that's 25 percent of the electric, so, ele electorate. Okay. Uh, so you mean 25 percent of the country. Um, it's a rush to label that, that I object to. I mean there are – But what if the label's are, accurate? But, it, it, but it's, it, it's a label. It doesn't reflect the complexity of it or the accuracy of it. Look, I just – I'll just tell you there's nothing in the data by the way nor in my experiences that justifies that type of comment. And it's politically stupid, political suicide, frankly, and just not the way we can build democracy. Because if you're going to sit there and say those people are terrible people on the other side, we're really never going to get very far in this country. No, I don't think you should say, right, say that, the terrible people on the other side if but you, you just want to did. get a vote. But you just did. I mean, you no, I said <laughs> – what I said is that a large percentage of Americans are xenophobic and racist. Yeah, well, okay, that's that's pretty much sounds like those people are terrible. I don't want to hang out with xenophobic and racist people. Do you? Uh, um, uh, I, do, I do. I mean, if we come from families and like human beings are complex and they could have different opinions also. Yeah, I don't know if I want to hang out with them. I could probably do a tailgate party if we're both Jets fans. There you go. So, uh, <laughs> But, you know, I think it's like it's – you have to start unpacking these things, Mike. Um, and look, um, I'm not going to justify anyone – because there are terrible people out there and I think the president is incredibly divisive and plays to that in the worst ways. But um, you know, I think there are people out there who have genuine concerns about immigration, um, about immigration policy, how it affects them, how it affects their family. And frankly, they feel those views have been ignored. It doesn't necessarily make them xenophobic. They might be. But it doesn't necessarily make them uh, um, that way and we rush to label them. We rush to look down upon them. We rush to judge them. And often without enough facts to do that. And that's really destructive of, of a democracy. I mean, you know, so the one thing I finished my book with, sort of the, the quote, the top of the chapter was Lincoln's quote about wanting to have the bonds of affection, that democracy requires us to be brothers and sisters. And if in the context of a civil war, you can still see those bonds of affection, um, we better be able to do that now or our country will fall apart. Oh, so personally, I have conservatives on my show all the time, and I, I subscribe to a lot of conservative thought, and I totally actually understand why people would have different feelings on immigration. The book was a little hard for me because I wonder if the premise of the book was that we caricature the other side. I thought for a, to some extent it was a caricature of liberals to think that we caricature conservatives, though it does go on 
So when you went to the conservative world, I wanted to say, well, is he showing me things that I hadn't considered before? And it did seem that a lot of the time, what you were saying is that here's uh, an extreme position that liberals take, or sorry, liberals criticize Republicans for taking an extreme position, but they do too. I'll give you an example. Science. Uh, Liberals criticize Republicans uh, or conservatives for being the party of anti-science. But there are some examples, as with GMOs, where liberals do that too. So my question is, as much, and does that matter? Let's actually step back for a second, because you, you again gave this sort of huge run-up to it. Um, and I want to challenge the run-up, which is uh, that I was characterizing liberal view, uh, caricaturizing liberal views of Republicans. And that's not me char- characterizing. That's what the data says. Our view of the other side, whether you're Republicans thinking about Democrats or Democrats or Republicans, are increasingly angry, nasty, and discordant. It's not actually that we're disagreeing. We don't disagree anymore on abortion than we used to. We don't. Agree, we actually agree more on immigration than we than we used to. It's not about issues. That's the problem, Mike. Which is, it's about how poorly we think of the other side, and that has been increasingly disconnected to the actual facts on the ground. So. Now, having lost the thread of your question, so you the want science, to ask about the science. science. Yes, the yeah. Uh, we all attack each other for being against. Uh, Democrats attack Republicans for being against science, and that's true. I mean, they've been terrible on science on things like climate change, appallingly so. Um, but the point I made was not to disagree with that attack because I think the Republicans have have really diminished themselves with how they think about. It. But a to try to understand it, and also to reflect the fact that look. We all pick and choose a bit when it comes to science and Democrats have done that on um, GMOs and other things where the science is, is, is as complete as it is on, on, on climate change. I think we have to have a sense of – a little bit of sense of humility. Our alliance with, with, with science is always a little bit under a flag of convenience. Um, what about media? Do you think that liberal media, and we'll just let the right define liberal media, which is something like all the networks and the Washington Post and the New York Times and NPR, do you think liberal media is better than conservative media? Oh, undoubtedly. It's very different from mainstream media. I won't call it the liberal media. I'll call it the mainstream media. doesn't mean that the mainstream media is perfect, but they play a very different institutional role and – you're going to get information about what's happening in the world in a very useful way from mainstream media that you don't get from conservative media. Did the conservatives you hung out with, did they actually consume and believe the conservative media? Yeah, sure. I mean, the conservative media in this country, I mean, uh, has a huge, enormous following. I I don't know if it's as big as the mainstream media, but sure. I mean, the conservative media, I mean, Rush Limbaugh is the you know, number one or number two program in the country. Mark Levin's not that far behind. Fox's got an audience that is equal to MSNBC and CNN combined. I mean, there's no it's a lot. I mean, Breitbart's got a huge audience. Um, there's a huge appetite for that in this country. So, if liberals are consuming and believing the mainstream media, and conservatives are consuming and believing the conservative media, doesn't that mean that liberals are more informed than conservatives? Better informed? I don't know. So. I mean, I think there's probably more crossover on the conservative side that they use both mainstream media because it is mainstream. I mean, mainstream yeah, yeah, yeah. media reaches most you turn of the on country. the TV, you don't subscribe to cable. That's what you're getting for the free yeah. Networks. I mean, yeah. the, the, I mean, we talk a lot about Fox News, but its audience is tiny compared to ABC News, NBC News, CBS News. Certainly, cumulatively, in each individual network as well. So, you know, and I think the New York Times and the Washington Post are by far the biggest newspapers in the country. 
um, in terms of reach, especially digitally. So, you know, their their content is far more used than the cumulative reach of conservative media. I think a lot of conservatives say, well, we have to have conservative media because we are soaked in, they'll say liberal media, I'll say mainstream media every day. Yeah, and there's an argument to that as a corrective if you do it right and you do it honestly. But I'm thinking about the subtitle, How I Left the Liberal Bubble. Uh, there are elements of a bubble to it, but if mainly cons- liberals are consuming mainstream media and mainstream media hues to the accurate, isn't this bubble just something resembling accuracy? Or- <laughs> so, uh, uh, so the media is not just a media bubble, Mike. It's, it's who we talk to and who we know. So the Washington Post, and you can see, you can see my media mix because I keep quoting the Washington Post, did another survey during the last election. And they went to Virginia, a purple state, and they asked Clinton voters, do you have any close personal friends or family members who voted for Trump? And they asked the same of Trump voters. It's really extraordinary. About 60 percent on both sides said they had no family members or close personal friends voting for someone else. It means their bubble, their friends, their family, all are sort of in political uh, lockstep with them. This is the puzzle of our time. More and more we are isolating ourselves politically, hearing arguments uh, uh, that agree with us. And that's the bubble. It's not just – or you listen to the New York Times as opposed to or you read the New York Times as opposed to listen to or watch Fox. It is the whole thing. I live in a 94 percent Democratic ward in Washington, D.C., 100 percent Democratic household. I, I do live in a bubble. And the issue is not we all live in some bubble, but those walls of that bubble are thickening every day. That's the, that's the scary part of it for me. Ken Stern is the author of Republican Like Me, How I Left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to Love the Right. Ken, thank you very much. And thank you. I, I should have asked shorter, more pointed questions. You are correct. Excellent Next media time. analysis. <laughs> uh, I'm always there to help you, Mike. Always as much as I can. Thank you so much, Ken. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Hey guys, this is Mary, one of the GIST producers. I wanted to say real quick here, make sure to check out Slate's Working Podcast. It's hosted by Jacob Brogan. This is a show about what people do for a living. And this season, they're featuring jobs that touch on all aspects of LGBTQ life. Artists, doctors, queer theorists, tailors. The first episode of the season was with Ms. Cracker. She talks about her makeup routine, how she constructs a new outfit every night, and why drag is so vital to modern gay life. That slate's working. Hosted by Jacob Broken. And now, the spiel. Will this tax bill work? Probably to some effect. Plus, unemployment is low. Plus, whenever you stimulate the economy, hey, I'm a Keynesian. Whenever you load a lot of money into the economy, it has a stimulative effect. At what cost? Well, in the short term, it could be that people look around, say that things are looking pretty good. I don't know. Could have a big effect on the midterm elections. But another thing at play with people's opinion of the economy is it's very motivated by party. So this happened with Obama. It happened even more with Trump. Is the economy getting better or worse? Gallup asked. Before the election, the week before the election, Republicans said, The economy was getting better at a rate of about 20%. A week after the election, half of them were saying the economy is getting better. In one week, 80%. 
of Republicans were saying the economy was getting worse a week before the election. Trump gets elected. Less than half are now saying the economy is getting worse. The economy doesn't work like that. And the weird thing about our opinion of the economy and the fact that it caused so much unrest and upheaval around the world, uh, Brexit and the great unraveling of the social safety net and all the anger that fueled Trump is that things just ain't that bad. They're just not that bad. They're not as good as they could be. They're better than they were. And in a lot of ways, they're better than they are elsewhere. Right? I mean, I always thought that. Let's look around. I'm not going to compare the United States to Botswana. Let's look around to some European countries, right? France has had around 10% unemployment for a decade. Japan is in permanent recession. Garbage sits on the streets of major Italian cities uncollected. The UK had this disastrous Brexit decision. Oh, and Scandinavia. All right, Scandinavia is pretty great. I'll give you Scandinavia. But then I read an essay that argued, no, no, Europe's just much better. It was first person. It was written by a writer named Umer Haq in Medium. Here's some of what it said. Everything I consume in the States is a vastly, abysmally lower quality. Every single thing. The food, the media, little things like fashion, art, public spaces, the emotional context, the work environment, and life in general make me less sane, happy, alive. The media? The media is worse than the United States? Look, British broadcasters are better than American broadcasters, but... American print media is light years ahead of the horrible English press. English art and food is better than American art and food. Okay, let's move the argument to France. French food just is better. But their work environment's better? Like I said, 10% unemployment since 2010. Uh, just recently, it went to like nine and a half. Macron, the miracle. The author of this article goes on to say, London, Paris, Berlin. In London, Paris or Berlin, I hop on the train, head to the cafe. It's the afternoon and nobody's gotten to work until 9 a.m. And even then, maybe not until 10, I order a carefully made coffee and a newly baked croissant. I do some writing. I pick up some fresh groceries, maybe a meal or two. I head home. Now it's six or seven. Everyone else has gone home around five. I watch something interesting, maybe a documentary by an academic, the BBC's Blue Planet or a Swedish crime noir. In New York, Washington, and Philadelphia, I do the same thing, but it's not the same experience at all. I take broken down public transport to the cafe. Everyone's been at work since six or seven or eight. They already look half dead. I order coffee and a croissant, both of which are fairly tasteless. Pick up some mass-produced groceries full of toxins and colorings and GMOs, even though they're labeled organic and fresh. And I head home. People are still at work, though it's seven or eight. I watch some, something bland and forgettable, reality porn, decline porn, police state TV. All right. On the croissant, I think he's right. On the TV, he's totally wrong. I mean, you could watch those BBC documentaries on American TV, right? But a lot of people I respect love this essay. In fact, David Plotz, host of the Political Gab Fest, endorsed this essay in his cocktail chatter on the most recent show. So here he is, Mr. David Plotz. What was powerful to me was not so much the straight up comparison of Europe and the United States. We've we've all read cherry-picking comparisons mm-hmm. of Europe and the United States. And actually, let me pause and say, I think that's a very strong argument. Uh, the middle-class life in particular and the life of the poor in particular is better in Europe than it is in America. So, But let's set aside the merits of it. I think the two new things that Umer Haq brings, one is a very strong argument that Americans have stopped paying attention to what the rest of the world does and drown out what the rest of the world does and dismiss it and say, 
no matter what it is that another country is doing, it doesn't matter because America is better. It's the, the ideology of American exceptionalism, which is primarily pushed by conservatives, not exclusively, but primarily pushed by conservatives, has become very dangerous because it means that we're not as open to new ideas, to new uh, ways of doing things, to using government in new ways. And that's a huge problem. And in particular, it's around government. It's around the provision of public services rather than private economic activity. And the second point, which he doesn't belabor as much, but which is true when you start to look at the economics, is that we've always held up the idea that, well, you know what? In America, you can make it. In America, whoever you are, you can make it. And, you know, there's some, you know, there's economic mobility. We can all cite examples of people who were poor, who have become rich and become successful. But the fact is, if you look in the economic statistics now, most of Europe has better economic mobility than the United States does. So if you're poor in Europe, the chances you're going to end up better off and wealthy are much higher than they are in the United States now. And that's depressing and scary. Well, I don't know how to do this without arguing point by point, but I'll ask you a couple questions. One, would you rather the Rawls test, right? Just randomly born at a strata of society, Spanish society or U.S. society? And uh, randomly born in a strata of society, Spanish or U.S.? Mm, Spanish. Oh, wow. That Spanish is tough because Spain is, has, is such an economic basket case. Yeah. So if you say yeah. Germany, France, Sweden, Netherlands, Belgium, U.K., Ireland, um, even Poland, uh, I, I think no. I would say Come on, Poland? Italy. Spain, what? Spain, Italy? Yeah. Definitely. Italy's much more dysfunctional than the United States. Italy's I'll dysfunctional, but the way people live and the, uh -huh. the provision of public services and the support of life, I think, is better. Now, I, I happen to be someone – also, Mike, it's, it's, it's not much of a test to ask it of someone who is, has benefited from every single aspect of what I've just talked about. I was someone who was born into a prosperous, educated family. I have continued to be prosperous and educated. I live in a rich place. I'm paid well. It's pretty easy for me to see the benefits of living in the United States. But I'm in the 1% or 2% probably. That's why I prefer not to argue this by anecdote by looking at what is my situation or what is the New York situation. But look at the economic data in general. Spaniards live five years longer and French people live five years longer than Americans do. So that's a pretty good data point. There's mm -hmm. The economic mobility in Spain and France and Norway and Germany is greater than it is in the United States. So that's a pretty good data point. So I was looking at yes, suicide of course. rates and, uh, you know, I thought the United States would be much lower. It's not. It's right in the middle of a bunch of these other European countries. You're correct. It's because we have easy access to guns. Probably the that success is rate exactly is very higher. That is exactly why it is, yeah. All right. Well, I, what I like to do every once in a while is rail, but then every, every once in a while I like to uh, invite someone on who will tell me, Mike, rethink this position. So I thank you, David Plotz, CEO of Atlas Obscura. Thank you, David. Thanks, Mike. That was really fun. Thanks for inviting me. So here's the postscript to all of this. I've been thinking about the essay. I've been looking up statistics. Suicide rates, they're a little higher here than in England and France. Lifespan, a little lower here. That mobility stat David cited, the U.S. is actually better than the U.K., but nowhere near as good as Germany. France is kind of in between. I think, as with the economy, things just look worse with Trump as president. Then again, unlike anywhere in Europe, Trump is president. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname called the calling birds. They didn't answer his call. They have calling bird waiting. 
Mary Wilson, just producer, is sick of Jack Frost nipping at her nose. Let's get some Jack Black nipping at her ears. Steve Lichta, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, announced a six-part limited series upending everything you know. Bad King Wenceslas. You'll meet his brother, Boleslaw. Blame for his assassination. But was it a setup all along? The Radio Shack parking lot could hold the key. The gist. No, it's been said many times, many ways. Umperu, depru, dupru. And thanks for listening.